0: We thank you, Jesus, that you indeed are the Messiah. And we thank you that you are the Christ, the one who came. We thank you that you were the one who was always promised. And we thank you that you are hope. As we turn our attention to your word, we pray that you would be with us in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. I just want to make one uh, further announcement. But on January 13th to 15th, the young adults, so if you self-classify as a young adult, We're gonna head up to New Life Camp, that's in Durham, uh, for a weekend retreat. I'm gonna come with you, I'm gonna teach for the weekend, and uh, we're gonna go tubing, and we're gonna play uh, board games, indoor games. There's a barn there for uh, ball hockey. And uh, one of my favorite games at a camp like that, cuz there's always snow up there, is Annihilation, where you put, uh you've been there, haven't you, for this? I just saw the smile, anyway. So you, you put everybody in a circle, right? There's, there's kind of tubes, uh, not tubes, there's pylons around the outside of the circle, so girls all go in, and by any means possible, you're the last person in the circle. And then the guys go in and do the same thing, and um, if my sciatic is feeling fairly good that weekend, I plan to toss all the guys out of the circle. That's all I'm saying. Oh, nice, somebody doesn't believe me. John uh, was failing out of school, third year. He'd struggled with depression and anxiety, And now he was failing three of his courses. Christmas break was coming and he was about to go home and he didn't know how to tell his parents about this. He didn't know what to say. How would he explain to them that the money that they had given him, that they had spent on tuition was now gone and that he was failing three of his courses? He felt hopeless. Rick was driving aimlessly again. 34 years old, lost his third job in three years. He knew he wasn't easy to get along with, but he was having a hard time keeping work. Married, three kids, hadn't yet told his wife that he'd lost his job two weeks before, driving around, hoping to figure out what to do next. Heather, single mom, her husband had left her after they'd had their second child. Now 37, with two children, kind of in their preteen ages, looking after them. December 21st, walking out of the doctor's office to find out she was terminally ill. What do you do when you hear news like this or when things like this happen to you? How do you respond when you're spiraled into despair, uncertainty, struggle? Where is your hope? Where is your hope anchored? Our hope isn't something that's whimsical or wishful thinking. The Christian hope is a confident reliance. It's something that's dependability, that's certain, that's true. For the believers, our hope isn't simply in our health. Our hope isn't in our grades. Our hope isn't in our marriage. Our hope isn't in our job. Our hope is in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And it's easy to forget that. It's easy to allow our hope to fall the level of this plane, and if you're thinking about health, and relationships, and grades, finances, it's easy to have our hope fall there and struggle because of that. But we have a hope that is sealed in heaven for us, we're told, by Peter. A hope that cannot be taken, it's in God alone. And so this morning, as we focus on hope, I want you to turn to Matthew 12. And as I walk you through this passage, the first portion of it, you might be thinking, What has this got to do with Advent hope? So you're going to have to hold on to the end until I get there. Matthew chapter 12, beginning at verse 1. Matthew, of course, writing his gospel predominantly to the Jews in wanting to prove that Jesus is the Messiah. Verse 1, at that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. He answered, haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God, and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which wasn't lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. Or haven't you read in the law that the priests on Sabbath duty in the temple desecrate the temple and yet are innocent? I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. For most Jews, they anticipated the Sabbath. They were actually excited. It was a day of rest. It was a day to celebrate God's divine created order. It was a day set apart for the Lord. The Pharisees had set out 39 new rules specific to the Sabbaths found in the Mishnah. A book of inter, it was written in the intertestamental period. There's several books written in the intertestamental period. That is the time between Malachi and Matthew. So the Epigrapha, the Mishnah, the Apocrypha, all written in that time period. And the Mishnah had 39 rules in it specific to not breaking the Sabbath. And those 39 rules, of course, are above and beyond anything that the Bible said. It's like our culture years ago where churches would say, If you don't drink, you can't get drunk. So to sign on to membership, you'll sign on that you do not drink. That was true of this church 30 years ago, 34 years ago. Um, And many churches. We, We weren't alone. Because if you create a barrier here, you'll never break the barrier there. So that's what they did. So the disciples are walking through the grain fields. The grain fields, likely there's paths that the disciples are going through. Or they're on the edges of them. And the grain would go right through the edge. And these aren't roads uh, necessarily like we would be thinking of where you're trying to get two vehicles down on there's sidewalk down the side of it and, you know, way over. This is right by the edge of the road. And so right there by the edge of the road, they, they're, you know, hungry. They pick some of the grain and they eat it. And the Pharisees say they're doing what's unlawful because what are they doing? Well, they're picking the grain. That's reaping uh, or harvesting. And, and then they're likely taking the external husk off of the grain so they could eat it. That's threshing. So they've broken the law now in two places. But this wasn't God's law. This was pharisaical law. Mission law. Now they don't charge them with walking too far. They could only walk 1,100 meters in those days. So likely they haven't done that. Jesus answers with two things. He says, do you remember what David did? This is back in 1 Samuel. When David was running from Saul and he and his companions were hungry, what did David do? Well, he went to the... Tabernacle, the temple wasn't built yet, and said, "We're hungry. Can we have some bread?" Likely, this was on the Sabbath day. Though the account in Samuel doesn't tell us that, we suspect that because the bread was put out fresh on that day, only the priests were to eat the consecrated bread. But the bread was given to David and his companions. And they says, "Don't you know that even the priests break the Sabbath law? They're working on the Sabbath. The priests still have to work on the Sabbath." Those are Jesus' two arguments. Why? Well, let me offer you two words. One is authority, the other is priority. Authority, he's saying David was going to be king. He has authority. And his men were hungry, likely famished hungry, not like the disciples where they wanted a snack. And so the priority was to do good on the Sabbath, to feed them. But then, again, the law itself allows for The authority of the priest to break the rules of the Sabbath in order to work so that others who are coming in can be served. And so it's both around authority and around priority. Around who they are and what they're appointed for. Who they are, right? David, the priest, what they're appointed for. Running the tabernacle, then temple. Running the kingdom. Jesus goes on. And he says that something greater than the temple is here. He says, if you think David had authority and you think the priest had authority, I want you to know that something greater than the temple is here. He's now reflecting on his own authority. He says, I I want you to know that as I make these next statements, I make them because I myself am authorized to do so. I myself am able to do so. But then he also talks about priority, not just authority. Because he quotes Hosea 6, and in quoting Hosea 6, he reminds us that he desires mercy, not sacrifice. He says, this isn't just about you coming and sacrificing over and over again. I'm bringing a gospel of mercy, a gospel of grace, a gospel of forgiveness, a gospel of love. Note, he calls the disciples innocent. You would not have condemned the innocent, stating they didn't actually break the Sabbath laws here. In fact, in Deuteronomy 23, it allows for people to come along the edges of the grain fields and take what is there. The farmers were to leave it there. And Jesus says, if you think that grabbing a few pieces of grain and eating them is breaking the Sabbath, he said, you're you're misconstruing the whole of my law. They are innocent. And then Jesus reminds them ultimately of his authority. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He says, don't forget who I am. I am the Son of Man, and I am Lord. I'm in charge. I have authority over the Sabbath. Now, they would have heard that and thought, heresy. Only Yahweh is Lord over the Sabbath. Jesus, who are you claiming to be? And what is this claim that you are the Son of Man? The Son of Man is an interesting term. It's used 81 times in the Gospels. It's used on a couple of occasions outside of the Gospels, 79 times in the Gospels. Jesus uses it of himself only two other times do others refer to Jesus in this. And that's find a couple of times outside of the Gospels. Um, I can't remember which epistle right now, and Revelation as well, um, where the term is used. It's found in the Old Testament. It's found in Ezekiel. Ezekiel uses the term of himself as, in, as a prophet. It's found in uh, the Psalms. It's used ambiguously in the Psalms, likely of humanity. And it's found in Daniel 7, where in Daniel 7, the Son of Man approaches the Ancient of Days to receive authority, glory, and sovereign power. But it's probably purposely ambiguous, which is likely why Jesus chooses to use this term about himself more than any other. Because the disciples and those following him won't understand the full ramification of what he's saying until after the resurrection. Because Jesus is cloaking some of who he is during his early years of his three years of ministry so that he's not crucified prior to the time when he should be. But he makes it clear to them, I have the authority and you've got the wrong priorities. He said to them, if any of you has a sheep, verse 11, and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, sorry, verse nine, I I skipped. Uh, Going on from that place, he went into the synagogue. And a man with a shriveled hand was there looking for a reason to bring charges against Jesus. They asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So there's a man there. One of his hands is unable to be used. They're in the synagogue to worship. The Pharisees are there. They're politely following him. And now they're like, hey, see uh, Joe over there? Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Now there was nothing in the law that prohibited healing on the Sabbath. Jesus said to them, If any of you has a sheep falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Note that. Doing good on the Sabbath is a a great thing. There was a time when uh, there was a great debate over what to do if your animal fell into a pit. There was a time in Jewish history, they'd say just lower some stuff down, the animal can climb out. There was a time when they said just throw in some food the animal can eat, get it the next day because the animal's not going to die. And then by the time we hit this portion of Jewish history, it was said you could actually go down to the pit and help the animal out. Right? You can see that in some of the writings in the intertestinal period. And so because of that, all of the Pharisees would have agreed, yes, you can take the animal out. And Jesus' argument is if we can take an animal out of a pit because it's there, Certainly we can do good by healing someone who's here. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out, and it was completely restored, just as, just as sound as the other. But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. Now this is ridiculous. right? He, he doesn't do anything but speak. That's all he does. He speaks, and the man's hand is healed. That's all that happens. Words just flow from his mouth, and they're like, man, He's worked on the Sabbath, let's kill him. It's ridiculous what's going on here. Now, it's more than that. They're furious that he's called himself Lord of the Sabbath, that he's referred to himself as the Son of Man, that he's defied their authority, claiming his own authority. And so at this point, they go out and begin to plot how they can kill Jesus. They're angry. Aware of this, verse 15, Jesus withdraws from that place. A large crowd followed him and he heals all who were ill and he warned them not to tell others about him. So Jesus withdraws, likely for a couple of reasons. He doesn't want to continue to draw attention to himself. Whenever the crowd gets too big, Jesus kind of shifts to another place where he's not trying to draw a lot of attention to himself, even though at times large crowds came. We know the feeding of the 5,000. And there would have been way more than that there because it's it's specifically noted it's 5,000 men. Plus there would have been women and children but a large crowd follows jesus heals all who is healed and then he says that this was to fulfill matthew says what was spoken through the prophet isaiah here is my servant whom i have chosen the one i love in whom i delight i will put my spirit on him he will proclaim justice to the nations he will not quarrel or cry out no one will hear his voice in the streets A bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not snuff out, till he has brought justice through to victory. In his name, the nations will put their hope. He quotes from Isaiah 42, and he quotes the first four verses of Isaiah 42 in the longest quote of the Old Testament in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew does this ten times, ten times through his Gospel He takes Old Testament messianic promises and places them within his gospel. And he does so as the apostle writer, the disciple writing to the Jews to prove to the Jews that Jesus indeed is the Messiah. He is indeed the Christ. But I want you to note as you look at this, it says who he is, what he will do, how he will do it, and what will be accomplished. Who he is, what he will do, Uh, how he will do it, and what will be accomplished. Note verse 18. He is a servant, the Father says, that I have chosen. I love him. My delight is on him. My spirit is on him. That's who he is. A spirit-filled, chosen one, whom God's love and delight rests upon. That's who this servant is. This is the first of four servant songs in Isaiah, Isaiah 42, there's four more, three more that come later on in Isaiah. And here it's really clear that this person who's coming is a servant, chosen, loved, delighted in, and God's spirit rests on him. Note what he will do. He will proclaim justice to the nations. He's going to come and declare justice. God is a God of justice. He is just. God lives, because he's triune, Father, Son, and Spirit, perfectly in a number of ways. God lives perfectly in a love relationship. God, the Father, loves the Son. God, the Son, loves the Father. God, the Spirit, loves the Father. God, the Spirit, loves the Son. You can just keep going. That's why Jesus can say, as the Father has loved me, so I love you. It's out of the love that God has for himself in his three-in-oneness that that love overflows and outpours into our lives. It's why we have fellowship. It's why we get to know each other. Because God lives in perfect fellowship and then allows us to live in perfect fellowship. He adopts us into his family. Much of what we understand in the Christian life is rooted in the nature and character of who God is. Including Justice. Injustice is oppressive. Injustice is selfish. Injustice is one wanting their rights over another. And God is a God of justice and justice flows from him. Because the triune members of God, of our Trinity, of of who he is, are completely just. They're selfless in the way they interact with each other. That's why when people say that the cross was some type of of child abuse, it's not remotely true. God the Son sacrificed himself on the cross as God the Father poured his wrath out on him. And so this one who is chosen, loved, this one who is delighted in, whose spirit is in him, he's going to bring justice. Justice to the nations. Note verse 19 how he'll do it. He won't quarrel. He won't cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. What's he saying there? He's not going to cause a big rebellion. He's not going to get an army to take over the world. He's going to do it through love and grace and hope. That's how he's going to do it. He's not going to call the people when 5,000 people show up to hear him teach and he feeds them and women and children are there. He's not going to call them to take up arms against the Romans. He's going to do it gently and lovingly. I mean, could you imagine if as many people in history had as much power of Jesus what they would have done with it? I don't mean God power. I just mean power in terms of the number of people following him. I mean, lots of people created insurrections in those days, and they would have followers of 100, 150, 200. Jesus had thousands. He could have called them to do anything, but he didn't because he knew his his purpose was a loving, gracious, kind purpose that would bring about justice in a way that no other person was able to bring justice about. And note this, a bruised reed he will not break A smoldering wick he would not snuff out. What's a bruised reed? Well, reeds were often used for measurement. They would create a certain length with a reed, and then they would use it to measure, right? Different distances, how far you needed to go, what you needed to build. Reeds were often used as like our measuring tools today, a tape measure of sorts. But when the reed breaks, it's useless. You just throw it out. It's not good for anything. When, when a wick is smoldering within the candle, and the candle then was to give light. I mean, we today, we buy candles for scent, right? We turn lights on, but we buy candles for scent. Oh, have you smelled this candle? Now, I can make fun of it all I want, but my wife sells a store that with lots of scented candles in it, so I'm thankful for people that buy scented candles. It puts food on our table as well, right? So there's, there's lots of scented candles out there, but people are like, oh. Like, in fact, some of you Friday night when you learned Amy owns a store called Vintage Charm, you're like, I, that's your wife? I'm like, yes. And you were like, I love that store. I'm like, yeah, I, I do too. And I said, you know, it's, it struggled a bit this year, so go in and buy some more stuff. As I said it on Friday night. I'm just having fun. Um, so, so with that, right, we buy candles for scent, but they, they lit candles for light. They couldn't turn on a light switch. Candles were meant to light. And so if it's smoldering, what's it doing when you see a smoldering candle? It's smoking. It's not producing light. It's polluting. So it's giving off the opposite scent of just a a candle that has no scent. It it now stinks. And there's no light coming from it. And and what happens? You you put it out and you discard it. And who will this servant be? What does it say? He will not break the bruised reed. He will not snuff out the smoldering wick. You ever feel like a bruised reed? You ever just hurt, wounded, wounded by friends who've said things about you that are maybe untrue, or even if they are true, it still hurts, wounded by people who've abandoned you, wounded by a boss who's been cruel to you, you ever been broken? Jesus is a Savior who will not break a bruised reed. He comes to heal bruised reeds. He comes to restore the smoldering wick. And then he will bring justice through the victory. How does he do that? By way of the cross. On the cross, he will perform the ultimate justice. He will take our sin upon himself as God the Father pours his wrath that we deserved on him. He will do so, and the Son, who always experienced perfect communion between the Father and the Spirit, will actually cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As the perfect fellowship they had always enjoyed was interrupted in that moment, as the Son is dying on the cross for our sin, he will bring about justice and righteousness by his own blood and broken body. That's how he'll do it. He will sacrifice himself. He will be the ultimate service. He, servant. He will go through more suffering than anyone else ever in human history. As the wrath of the Father is poured out on him and the Romans are crucifying him. And he'll do so because he longs to restore bruised reeds and smoldering wicks. Is that not great news? And why are we bruised? And why are we smoldering? A few minutes ago I mentioned about other people against you, but it's not just always other people against us, is it? It's our own sin. Our own sin does this. Our own sin that wreaks havoc in relationship. Our own sin that hurts other people. Our own sin that at times brings financial calamity. Our own sin that brings about the difficulty we find ourselves in. It's not just that others do this to us. We do this to ourselves. Our own sinful nature leads in this way. And Jesus says, whether someone has done this to you or whether you've done it to yourself or likely it's a combination of the two, I have come to heal your bruised soul. I have come to restore the light of your life. Is that not great news? And then note the last line. And in his name, the nations will put their hope. If you read back in Isaiah, it talks about the islands putting their hope. And the idea there is that this will go to the very ends of the earth, Isaiah is saying. Matthew takes it, takes a little bit of liberty with the Hebrew and and translates it into nations. The nations will put their hope. And what he's saying is that Jesus is going to be the hope for all the nations. He is going to be the hope for everyone. Well, what happens with hope? Quickly. Quickly right? Hope is our confident reliance in God, but all kinds of things come into the way of hope. Uncertainty. When you're uncertain about your hope, you begin to doubt. Fear, trepidation, dread, right? When you're fearing, is this real? God, are you really there? Are you really my hope? Unbelief, cynicism, skepticism. So uncertainty, fear, and unbelief, they come in the way of hope. But Jesus says, I want you to know the one you've put your hope in is real and true. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. I have the authority. I am the Son of Man who will come before the Ancient of Days and receive glory and sovereign power and authority. That is who I am. And I have my priorities, right? I desire mercy not sacrifice it is great great news and so he's hope for our brokenness he's the anchor in our lives when our grades are failing when our finances aren't what we want them to be or we're heading toward bankruptcy when our relationship is struggling when our health isn't well he is our anchor jim's daughter ran away when she was 17 years of age grew up in a godly home whose parents loved Jesus deeply, all the other siblings in the family following the Lord. She found herself soon on the streets, unable to support herself, found herself with friends who got her into addictions, and to support her addictions, she entered into prostitution. Her parents had heard about this, heard that she'd been stripping at a strip club, and they would, through a cousin who knew where she was, drop off letters for her in the times when they didn't, couldn't find her and they would always give her these letters to read. And then finally, when they found out where she was in the strip club, dad showed up one Christmas, wrote her a letter, went into the strip club and dropped it off because she'd asked someone where her, his daughter would get changed and left it there. Someone said someone was here to drop off a letter. She thought it was her cousin who couldn't find her. She looked at the letter and realized that this letter was different. She asked who dropped it off, and as the person was being described, she realized it was her dad. She read the letter of his love for her and of God's grace for her, and she wept. She left, took the money she had, got on a bus, and went home. She got to her parents' door, knocked on the door that Christmas Eve. The door opened, her dad was there, and before she could get the words out of her mouth, he looked at her and said, welcome home, and hugged her and said, Jesus loves you. She's now serving the Lord overseas as a missionary, probably 20 years later because she found Jesus to be her hope. He's hope for our brokenness. He's also hope for our brokenness, because God doesn't only just save us, he saves the people. It's great news. He saves a church. We're grafted into his family. We're part of the children of God, where we're to forgive and show grace and mercy. And so George and Hank were brothers who had started into a business together, neither of them knowing the Lord. The business was very successful, did quite well, and they battled over money. And finally, one day, they split the business. Lawyers involved, anger involved, never speaking to each other again. But then 24 years later, George's son came to faith in Christ. And George's son was to take over George's part of that old business and the new business that he had started. But he began to share with his dad what God had done in his life. Began to share with his dad the power of the gospel. Began to share with his dad the hope in Christ. And one day, George says, as I was sitting there, reading the Bible my son had given me, going through the gospel of John, I realized that this man, Jesus, is not just a man. He is the great, I am the Lord of the universe, and I gave my life to him. He said, the first person I called was my wife to tell her what God had been doing in my life because God had been working in her life. The second person I called was my son. And he said, the third person I called was my brother. My brother answered, I didn't expect that he would. I told him what had been going on in my life, and I asked him for forgiveness for how I had acted all of those years earlier. George said, that Christmas, I invited my brother and his family over for dinner. We all celebrated together, and I shared the gospel. At the end of the night, he said, my brother came to me and said, I had been so empty. Could this gospel be for me as well? And George says, that night, a brother I had not talked to in over 24 years gave his life to Christ. That's what God can do. Hope for my brokenness. Hope for our brokenness. Hope for our world. Hope for our world. You go back to the third century and... Likely, there was a smattering of Christianity that you can find in China. Possibly because some of the apostles, maybe Thomas, who it seems made his way to India, and some of his disciples making their way up into China had gone. But it was small. And then centuries that came after that, the church struggled and there were very few people there. In 1909, um, Christianity was virtually non existent and missionaries began to go into China. Sorry, 1909, 1809. In, 19, in 1854, Hudson Taylor went to China. And at the end of his time in China, a thousand missionaries were serving with Hudson Taylor at the mission there in China. In 1949, just over or just under 100 years later, there were 4 million Christians in China. In 2018, the government esti- estimated, the Chinese government, that there were 44 million believers in China. But it's estimated by Christians that it's likely 80 to 100 million. God is choosing to save a whole nation in 200 years. That's way more Christians percentage-wise. I mean, it's triple the size of our country, right? If we have 38 million, at least double, more than double. But it's much larger percentage-wise than Christianity in Canada when you consider the, the, the stats and how big China is. God's at work. He's powerfully at work. In 1970, there were 271 million believers in Latin America. In 2021, there were 617 million believers. In 1970, there were 96 million believers in Asia. In 2021, there were 383 million. In 1970, there were 140 million believers in Africa. In 2021, there were 685 million. Our God is at work, and he is the hope in which All nations can believe in his name. The nations will put their hope. He is the hope of our world. He is the hope of the world. He is Jesus the Christ. He is the Messiah, the one in whom all of the world was waiting. Psalm 62, yes, my soul, find rest in God. My hope comes from him. Truly, he is my rock, my salvation. He is my fortress. I will not be shaken. My trust and my honor depend on God. He is my mighty rock, my refuge. Trust in him at all times, you people. Pour out your hearts to him. God is our refuge. Johnny Erickson Tata, who was left as a quadriplegic in a terrible diving accident, now decades ago, writes prolifically about hope and heaven. And in one of her writings, she says this, is hope really all that hard to come by? I don't think so. Our hope is for the desire of the nations, our hope is the healer of broken hearts, the friend of sinners, the God of all encouragement, the father of all comfort, the Lord of all hope. And this is my prayer that the eyes of your heart might be enlightened, so you may see this hope to which he has called you. Here are the ends: end of Isaiah 42. Matthew quotes the verse, first four verses. Here, verse five and following. This is what the Lord God says. The creator of the heavens who stretches them out, who spreads out the earth, with all that springs from it, who gives breath to its people and life to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light to the Gentiles, to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not yield my glory to another or my praise to idols. See the former things that have taken place and things I declare before they spring into being, I announce them to you. In his name, the nations will put their hope. Andrew, you guys can come up. And so today as we close on this first Sunday of Advent, two questions. Is he your hope? Is he your hope? Have you come here today knowing Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? And is he your hope? Is your trust in him? Here's how you know if your trust is truly in Jesus. There's nothing in your life that could be taken away from you that will cause you to give up your relationship with him. If your finances were gone today, If your spouse was gone today, you just name whatever it is, would you blame God? Or would he be your anchor? You see, if he's your anchor, everything else can disappear. And you know it's going to be okay because Jesus is right there. And secondly, for those of you who are here today who are believers, which is the majority of us, Oh, may he be our hope this Christmas. May we not be caught up in all of the festivities, though they're fun. May we be caught up in a Savior who brings hope. May he he be the hope for our lives, the hope for our church, the hope for North End Landing, the hope for our neighborhoods, the hope for our city, the hope for this nation, the hope for the nation's. May we declare that we have found one who grants us a hope that is an anchor. It is unshakable because he has the authority to do so and his priorities are mercy. Healing bruised reeds. Igniting smoldering wicks. The spirit is on him to do so. Would you pray with me? We thank you, God, that you are our hope, and we thank you that our hope is found supremely in the Lord Jesus Christ. You are our anchor this Advent. We thank you that in your name you are the hope for all nations and that you are saving people from every language and custom and culture and tribe. For that, Jesus, we are ever thankful. And on this first Sunday of Advent, we are thankful for the hope that you've granted so many of us. Lord Jesus, may that hope be realized powerfully this Christmas as we celebrate you. May we know your hope and your grace. May it be what is prevalent through this entire Christmas season. We need you. God, don't allow our eyes to fall to this world, but allow them to be lifted to you, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.